Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, reading through verse 20, and then again verse 40 through 44, page 1,230, page 1,230 in the Pew Bible. And while you're looking for that, just a heads up, uh, reaching for the hymn book after the sermon is kind of an automatic thing that we do without much thinking. But uh, this time, after the sermon, reach for the blue book, not the red book. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And then skipping ahead to verse 40. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them (coughs) wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. (coughs) Beloved, at the uh, beginning of this passage, the crowds are saying, where is he? But then they uh, focus on a more fundamental question, who is he? And uh, we read that they were divided on the subject. Some thought he was a good man. Some thought he was a deceiver. Some thought he was uh, uh, had a demon. And some thought he was the Christ. Uh, Four different alternatives that they were debating among themselves. There is division on this question, who is Jesus, not only on the pages of the New Testament, but that division also consists, uh, exists today. There are still lots of people who wonder, who is this Jesus? And I want to explore that question with you, not only to help some of you, who may have not yet committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and made a definite decision about who Jesus is, but also to strengthen the faith of those of you who have made that commitment 
to see that your commitment is reasonable and based on the evidence that faith in Jesus is not a blind leap into the dark, but uh, makes good sense and is the right thing to do. But before we look into what the text uh, is uh, debating about Jesus, we, we have to ask a more basic question, and that is this. Can we really know who Jesus is? Does, does the New Testament really give us accurate information about Jesus? Are, are these stories real? Are they historical? Or are they myth and legend? Are they fantasy made up uh, hundreds of years after the time of Christ by uh, people who had a very vivid imagination? Uh, critics say that something that happened so long ago can never be truly known. Uh, they think that the New Testament is shrouded in myth and legend, and there's no way that you and I can really know the historical Jesus. But that really isn't true by any standard of historicity. We know more about Jesus and the New Testament times than we do about almost any period of ancient history, even more than some uh, of our knowledge of more uh, recent centuries, uh, like the, the 18th or 19th or even 20th century uh we have just a vast amount of information, and it is reliable information. With regard to the New Testament, for example, there are thousands, literally thousands, of ancient manuscripts that date within 200 years of the time in which the New Testament was written. These manuscripts come from different parts of the ancient world. They come from different uh, schools where they were copied in different places, and uh, by comparing them to one another, we can easily discover what the original text was. Now, you might wonder why God didn't preserve the original text from the hand of the apostles. Well, remember what they did with Aaron's staff that budded in the Old Testament. Uh, the people uh, started worshiping it. It became a holy relic. And I'm sure that if the original documents of the New Testament still existed, they too would be worshipped as uh, holy relics. God saw fit to uh, remove them from uh, history. But we know the kind of copyists, uh, kind of errors that copyists make. You know, the Tim Testament was copied basically two different ways. Uh, a person would have uh, an original and a blank sheet of paper, and he would look back and forth between the two documents and copy. And occasionally he would miss a word or leave out a phrase or something like that. That's a common copyist error. But another form of making the New Testament was for someone to read it to a group of people who uh, he would read it slowly and dictate, and they would write down uh, what was uh, dictated. And there, there was uh, very little chance of uh, missing uh, any words or phrases, but there would be spelling errors. Well, you know, if you compare the two different methods of uh, copying, you can easily see which one was which and, and compare them. And uh, scholars uh, have, uh, both believing and unbelieving scholars, have recognized that, you know, 99.9% of the New Testament is exactly as it came from the pen of the original authors uh, by comparing all these thousands of documents. We, we know that uh, we have the original New Testament. There may be uh, uh, a dozen words that are slightly in doubt, but they're minor words, uh, an article, a conjunction or something, a little preposition that... Nothing that makes any difference in any doctrine. 
There are two passages that are in question, the end of Mark's gospel and the story in John's gospel of the woman taken in adultery, but uh, there's nothing in those that really changes any of the teaching of the New Testament, whether they should be part of the original or not. And they're found in every Bible, either in the text or in a footnote. So it's not like people are trying to hide these things uh, from you. Uh, we have the New Testament. We have the documents. And it was the case in the uh, in the 18th and 19th century that uh, the critics of the Bible said, well, you know, these these documents, they, they're they're from two and three hundred years uh, after the time of Christ, because that's that's when the, the copies were. And that, so they thought that's that's where the originals were, too. It's too far removed from the original source uh, to be uh, considered accurate. But uh, now even unbelieving scholars recognize that uh, the New Testament was written uh, between 20 and 30 years after the events of Jesus' life, during the lifetime of the apostles. And if that is the case, and indeed there's every evidence that it is the case, it's very clear that if this contained falsehood, it would have been easily uh, discovered. You know, 25, uh, 20 to 30 years is, is not a long time. Uh, when the uh, Appella uh, Chronicle went out of business, I began to subscribe to the uh, uh, Oskaloosa Herald. And uh, those of you who get that paper know that I think it's once a week they have a, a little column on the top of the second page called uh, 25 Years Ago uh, in the Herald. And uh, I looked recently and I, I read this little uh, item. I got a little clipping here from the Herald, 25 years ago in the Herald. Uh, the Pella High Dutch were stunned with an 84 82 sub-state loss against Creston. A buzzer beater tapped off Creston's effort to outscore Pella in the final six and a half minutes of the contest. 25 years ago, the Pella Dutch lost to Creston in a basketball game in a sub-state contest. Uh, Pella was uh, leading most of the game, and then in the last six and a half minutes, Creston starts to uh, catch up. And uh, right at the buzzer, Creston sinks the winning shot and wins by two points. Must have been an exciting game. But, you know, 25 years ago, I was in Orange City. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know about it until I read it in the paper here. And I wonder, did that really happen? You know, there are journalists who can get Pulitzer Prizes for writing fiction as if it were news, as if it were real news. Maybe some uh, sports writer uh, a couple of weeks ago just made this up uh, to uh, put something exciting in the paper. Well, is it true or not? Well, it was 25 years ago. How would you go about trying to find out if it was true or not? Well, it won't be hard. Uh, I'm sure that that uh, some of you uh, know people who were in uh, Pella uh, high school uh, 25 years ago. Maybe uh, some uh, listening today were even on the team. And uh, you can say, did this really happen? Uh, is this true? And if it, if it is true, it would be easy to verify. And if it wasn't true, it would be easy to discover that as well. 25 years is not that long a time. You know, the Holocaust happened uh, about 75 years ago. 
And there are Holocaust deniers. But Holocaust deniers aren't getting any traction really in the world because everybody recognized they're motivated either by politics or religion to deny the Holocaust. And uh, there's just overwhelming evidence, even people still living who uh, uh, survived the Holocaust and the death camps and so forth. Uh, it's impossible to deny it even 75 years after the fact. Well, there were deniers of the resurrection from day one when the Jewish authorities said to the guards, tell uh, the people that the disciples came and stole the body while you were sleeping. But that story never got any traction. You can be sure that the events recorded in the New Testament, if they had been false, the Christian religion never would have gotten off the ground. There would be so many thousands of people who could say, that never happened. I was there when, when this supposedly happened, and it didn't happen. It's all a lie. Thousands upon thousands of people could have testified that it was wrong. But instead, you had people who were testifying it is true, and who were uh, willing to, to die for their testimony. When, when Paul stood before uh, Felix and uh, Festus or Agrippa and uh, uh, said, he said to them, you know, this wasn't done in a corner. <laughs> this is something everybody knows about. And, and nobody could deny it. We have uh, in the New Testament information that is uh, verifiable by any historical standard. And uh, you should not be at all shamed for believing the New Testament to be true and the Word of God and telling us about Jesus. Uh, John in his epistle writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, we have seen it and testified to it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Twice he says we saw it. Twice he says we heard it. Once he says we touched it. And that's what we proclaim. We have the eyewitness accounts of uh, people who gave their lives rather than deny those accounts. These have the, the legal weight of uh, a, a sworn affidavit that would be accepted in any court of law and certainly ought to be accepted by any historical standard as uh, being true. Uh, uh, don't uh, think that you are uh, somehow gullible or easily fooled by believing the New Testament. It is indeed very reasonable to believe. But uh, with that in mind, let's look at our text and see what it says about Jesus. Uh, it shows us that during his ministry, uh, the people were divided. There was speculation. Is he a good man? Uh, is he a deceiver? You know, a, a fraud? A, a charlatan? A, a snake oil salesman? Someone who preys upon the gullibility of others who's seeking his own glory? Is he self-deceived? That is, uh, is he under the influence of a demon who has convinced him that what he's saying is true, but it isn't? Or is he the Christ? who he says he is. Well, let's take the first thing. Is Jesus just a good man? Uh, that uh, is a very popular opinion in the world today. But it, it can only be popular by people who don't really know what Jesus taught. They, they think he's a good man or a good prophet or a good teacher, 
but they paid no attention to what he taught. If, if they would pay attention to what he taught about himself, they would say, no good person would say that about himself unless it was really true. And what he said about himself is that he is divine. Uh, you, uh, consider John 8:58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, not only is he claiming to be more ancient than Abraham, but he's also using God's name for himself. When, when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God from the burning bush said, tell them, I am has sent you. Now Jesus says, I am. You know, before Abraham was, I am. I am the God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. In uh, Mark chapter 14, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's uh, making reference there to the prophecy of Daniel 7, where one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days and was given a kingdom and authority and power and dominion. And uh, uh, Psalm 2 celebrates that. I have installed my king on my holy hill, and he has a rod of iron in his hand, and he's going to smash anybody who doesn't kiss the sun. And Jesus is saying, you're going to live to see me exercise my royal power from the throne. Uh, you're going to see Jerusalem destroyed in A.D. 70. Uh, Jesus, again, is claiming divine honor there. When uh, weeping over Jerusalem, uh, the, uh, in Matthew 24, or 23, uh, Jesus uh, says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. What? Jesus was born just, 30-some-odd years earlier, how, how could he send the prophets to the people of God down through the ages? Well, because he's God. Do ordinary men say that sort of thing about themselves? Do good men who are just men say that kind of thing about themselves? In uh, Luke chapter 5, we read, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The scribes and Pharisees knew only God has the authority to forgive sins. And yet Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins. Is that something that uh, good men say uh, who are mere men? Again, John 14, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's, that's asking an awful lot if you're just a man. You know, Winston Churchill called people to make great sacrifice. He called them uh, to blood and sweat and tears. But he didn't say, do it for my sake. He said, do it for God, do it for king, do it for country, do it for your own freedom and the freedom of your children. He, he never put himself there in the forefront and said, now, do that for me. You know, when Jesus was uh, risen from the dead, he uh, met with his disciples a few times before his uh, ascension, and he gave them some really great uh, redemptive historical lectures on how uh, the Bible is uh, about him. Uh, we read in Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
He's saying there, Moses wrote about me. The prophets wrote about me. The Psalms are about me. Which means, by the way, that when you sing the Psalms, you're singing about Jesus. But Jesus is basically saying, the Bible's about me. It's all about me. Does a good man, who's merely a man, make that kind of claim? You know, if, if I were to make those kind of claims, you'd, you'd say that I was a megalomaniac, that I was seeking my own glory. Jesus can only make these claims if they're true. And so, if they're true, he's so much more than a good man, a good teacher. He is God in human flesh. I think C.S. Lewis uh, was the one who, uh, who said that this is the uh, this is the impossible alternative. You know, uh, there's no way that Jesus can be a good man if he isn't also God, because the kind of claims that that he makes here are the kind of claims that. Uh, only uh, uh, a God can make. Uh, there have been human beings who have made these kinds of claims. Caesars who claimed uh, divine honor. Emperors of Japan who claimed divine honor. Or uh, people who demanded absolute loyalty unto death. People like uh, Hitler or Jim Jones or Charles Manson. But when people make those kind of claims, it almost always leads to tragedy and death. Only God has the right to make such a claim on you. Any mere human who makes such claims is evil, not good. Now, because Jesus uh, claims uh, we can't conclude concerning Jesus, oh, what a nice guy, what a good teacher. (laughs) That's impossible. He has to be much more than that if his claims are uh, uh, given those kinds of claims. Well, was he a deceiver Uh, or or, uh, insane? Those are two different options. Uh, consider them together. They're found in verse 12 and verse 20. Verse 12 says, he is leading the people astray. And verse 20 says, you have a demon. Well, both those options are based on deception. Either he was the deceiver or he himself was deceived. Another way to say you have a demon is to say uh, he's crazy. He's a lunatic. But that can't be either. Look at verse 15 of our text. It says, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They were amazed at his teaching. Uh, we didn't read verses 44 to 47, but if you did, you'd see there that the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus, and they came back empty-handed. And why? Well, the, the soldiers said, no one ever spoke like this man. You know, for 2,000 years now, the world has continued to marvel at the teaching of Jesus. It has inspired the unlearned and the learned alike. It has spread all over the world. It has inspired great works of art and music and architecture. And it has done this for diverse groups of people from all different kinds of cultures around the world. It has universal appeal. And so many have heard the gospel and said, yes. I understand. It's true. And it's glorious. G.K. Uh, Chesterton uh, spoke of uh, an illustration of a key in a lock. You know, if you find a, a random key and try it out on, uh, on different locks, and all of a sudden you find a lock upon which it works, you don't say, oh, what a coincidence. <laughs> How strange that a key should work on a lock. No, you say, ah, I have found the key designed for this lock. They, they, they go together. 
And every Christian can testify, yes, the gospel is the key that opens my heart to me and and reveals to me uh, the truth about me and about God. Uh, It's designed by God and it fits fits perfectly. Another thing uh, to consider is that celebrities can can also, can almost always, uh, or at least quite often, fool the masses into believing uh, good things about them. A good public relations team can build up the image of a, a politician or a business tycoon or an athlete or a movie star. You know, you can hire people to give you a good image, but the inner circle the people who live with you every day, they, they know the truth. And sooner or later, these celebrities and these politicians will have people from their inner circle uh, publish a tell-all book, cash in on uh, what they know, and and uh, ruin the reputation of that politician or whatnot. It's, it's happening to uh, Governor Mario Cuomo now. It's happening to uh, the late uh, Ravi Zacharias. A, spirit, a conspiracy of silence just can't hold. Uh, but Jesus' inner circle never turned on him. They did the opposite. They accepted death rather than deny him. If he was a lunatic, a crazy man, a, a demon-possessed man, the world would not admire his teaching as sublime. sublime. So many would, would not... Uh, want to consider him good and a good teacher and a moral example if he were uh, a demon-possessed. If he were a charlatan, a fraud, a liar, a con man, a deceiver, the conspiracy would have been exposed by the inner circle and the fruit of his labors would have disappeared. The only reasonable option is that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is indeed God in the flesh. This is what he claimed for himself, and that is what the apostles said about him. Jesus performed miracles to verify his claims, and the apostles performed miracles to verify their testimony about Jesus. Even the enemies of Christ and the apostles could not deny the miracles that had been performed, but attributed them instead to uh, the work of demons, which made no sense at all. Jesus said, I've come to destroy the work of the devil. Is the devil going to uh, enable me to perform miracles so that I will become successful in destroying his work? Uh, That just doesn't make any sense. Uh, These were not performed by the devil. They were performed by the power of God. The record of uh, Jesus' claims to divinity and the record of his miracles were widely circulated within just a few decades after the event. And if they were untrue, the Christian religion would have been dead in the water. But such reasoning and such evidence isn't going to make you a Christian, and it isn't going to bring anyone new into the kingdom. Uh, It it would be nice if uh, clear reasoning and sound evidence were enough to change human beings. But we are flawed creatures, and uh, we often ignore better knowledge if Good information and good evidence were all it took to change our behavior for the better. Then uh, there would be no one who ever would smoke or uh, get drunk or uh, become uh, eat too much or eat bad foods. We'd all eat healthy diets. We'd all uh, exercise regularly. Uh, 
uh, we would, no one would gossip, everybody would go to church, and everybody would tithe, you know. Uh, there's all sorts of things that make good sense that even though they make good sense, even though there's lots of evidence that this is a, a useful and productive thing to do for people, we don't do it. We all act against better knowledge. We are all broken people. So how? How can we come to know the truth about Jesus and be transformed by that truth? Well, there's, there's only one way, and that's you have to come to Jesus on his terms, not your own. Jesus speaks of that in verse 17 of our text, where he, uh, he tells us there, if anyone wants to do his will, that is God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He's telling us there, there's a, a moral dimension to coming to know the truth. There's this thing that if uh, anyone does my will, then then he'll know the truth. What he's saying is that you will not arrive at the truth by logic or rigorous debate because uh, that's because of our, our flawed nature. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. What, what the psalmist is getting at there and what Jesus is getting at is that if you come to God with a chip on your shoulder, saying, I will not submit myself to you unless you show me a miracle. I will not submit to you unless you prove to me that you exist. I will not submit to you unless I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ. It's your job to prove me. I sit in judgment on you. If that's your attitude, then you will never come to know Jesus. Instead, you need to come to him acknowledging that you are a mere creature and a flawed one at that. And that he's the creator to whom you owe your life your very existence, and to whom you owe your preservation to this point. Because as a sinner, you deserve to die, and he hasn't imposed that sentence yet. So he not only created you, he's preserving you, and you need to acknowledge that. Acknowledge that truth. And then, as you humble yourself and come before him humbly, he will begin to reveal himself. In John 8, we read, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The point is not that you have to reach a certain level of, of God-approved moral goodness before you are allowed to see whether Jesus is uh, from God, but rather that you have to be committed, committed to doing his will, committed to to honoring him as God and you as his flawed creature. Then he begins to reveal himself. But if you uh, approach God merely as a puzzle or a problem to be solved by man's wisdom, uh, no, that's not going to work. He is not to be approached as the object of some study where we sit in judgment of him dissecting in him and debating him and picking and choosing what we like and don't like, saying, well, I'll take this, but I won't take that. 
Rather, he reveals the truth to those who wholeheartedly commit themselves to him, to know him and follow him whatever, wherever he may lead. He hides himself from the proud, but he reveals himself to the humble. Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, in one of his commentaries, says, Finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside the truth and thus gain the vantage from which they may assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. He's saying the same thing there. God hides himself from the proud who stand aloof and sit in judgment on God, but he reveals himself to those who humble themselves before God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Show me who you are and what you have done for me. If you take the attitude, it's my life, I'll live it as I please, then obviously you are committed only to yourself, and you will never know who Jesus is. But if you recognize that living for yourself is not only lonely and literally a a dead end, if you humbly pray, uh, lead me in your truth and teach me, and God will indeed teach you. Psalm 25, verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And when he begins to reveal himself to you, one of the first things he may reveal to you is that your humility is itself a gift from him and that he had gave, gave you that humility to bring you to himself so that you give him all the glory for your salvation. Commit yourself to knowing him and following him and seek the truth from him and he will fill your field of vision uh, with light like the sun rising in the east and filling the sky with its light. So he will fill your life with the light of his truth and you will find him in him all that you need and you could all that you could ever want. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we... Thank you that uh, there was a division among the followers of Jesus and they debated uh, to show us that uh, it is not wrong for us to have questions as well. But we pray, O Father, that we may humble ourselves before you in order to discover the truth about Jesus and see him for who he is. We pray that uh, where you have opened our eyes, we may all be all the more sure that indeed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God and the Savior of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.